Hello, and thank you for joining us for the Hatchbend Apostolic Church web broadcast. In our society today, some, and yes, sadly, maybe even most, question the value of preaching in their lives. But we still believe what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. In essence, Paul preached that God has chosen the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. And so that's why we still place such a high value on the preached word of God in agreement to the scripture. And so now I'd like to thank you again for joining us for a message from the pulpit of Hatchbend Apostolic Church. take up time, but I feel like that it'll be important uh, to help us on the journey that we're embarking on this morning. The book of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, book of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, Then after two verses there, I'm going to the book of Acts chapter 15. In 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 23, The word of the Lord says, And the very God of peace sanctify you wholly. And I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved, blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he that calleth you, who also will do it. Book of Acts, chapter 15, and verse 7. And the Bible reads, And when there had been much disputing, Peter rose up and said unto them, Men and brethren, ye know how that a good while ago God made choice among us, that the Gentiles by my mouth should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, which hearts bear them witness, given them the Holy Ghost, even as he did unto us, and put no difference between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why tempt ye God to put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear. But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved even as they. And one more verse of Scripture in Romans 6 and 4. Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. This morning we're going to as Brother Davis already said, be talking about empowered by the Spirit to be holy. Our subject this month is concerning God's holiness, and this just is number three in that series. And one of the many truths about God is that the Holy Ghost and the Spirit of God empowers us to live transformed lives. You can try to be as good as you want to be, do all the things that you know to do, but if we don't have the Holy Ghost... If the Spirit of God is not leading and guiding us, then we can't attain to be holy. And so it is important that we be filled with the Spirit and walk in newness of life that we have been promised by Jesus Christ. He promised us that we could do this, but that He would have to walk by our side. When people say, I guess I'm just a perfectionist, sometimes the tone is apologetic and sometimes it's prideful. But often it's a mixture of both. And it's expressing the odd relationship that they share with this common psychological characteristic. More than just being competitive or striving for excellence, perfectionism is the unrelenting feeling of never being good enough. 
And sadly, the effects of perfectionism do not improve with age or maturity. I can attest to that. I have a small dose of OCD, and I always thought as I got older it would fade away. But it's only gotten worse. For some reason, I have to have everything's got to be in place. I prefer it to be labeled. And I find myself doing some silly things. If you walk into my shop, if you've never been in there before, it wouldn't matter. Because you could pick out anything you need. Because more than likely, it's got a label on it. But I find myself even walking into a room. And if there's a picture on the wall and it's unlevel, it just, I can't take it. I've got to slip in there and level it up. And that's perfectly fine in my own house. But I find myself going into others' homes. And I see a picture, and I've got to make my way over there without them noticing so I can straighten that picture, or I can't seem to concentrate on the conversation that's at hand. But the researcher Martin Smith showed that people who scored high in perfectionism categories became more prone to negative emotions like anger, anxiety, irritability as they grew older. Anybody notice yourself becoming more irritable as you get older? And surprisingly, they also become less conscious over time. Clearly, something has gone or is going terribly wrong with our world. As Richard Winter writes of this looming cultural crisis in his book, Perfecting Ourselves to Death, he says, these seductive sirens of the advertising and Hollywood cultures that surround us stimulate our partially conscious fantasies and dreams of perfecting ourselves. They increase our dissatisfaction and discontent with who we are and what we possess. Advances in technology have only enhanced their power and influence, and it is complicated by the fact that the dangerous influences in the pursuit of perfection are entwined with many good fruits. In other words, we think if we do enough good things, that classifies us as being perfect. But everywhere you look in today's society, there is something or some product that will enable you to perform better at whatever it is you're striving for. Whether it's a weight loss program you're trying to achieve, an exercise or a workout plan that you're seeking, there's always something out there to enhance your performance. Almost every ad or pop-up you see is someone famous promoting a product that will enhance or or make you better or speed up the results of whatever you're trying to accomplish. And many young teenagers and adults have caused permanent damage to their bodies by trying to achieve the look of some famous TV personality by using products that will clearly state in the fine print, not yet tested for human consumption, all in an effort to be perfect. But there's more to it. Jesus said in Matthew 5 and 48, Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. And here in these words of Jesus, we arrive at the real problem of perfection. Mistakes and underperformance on the job or on the athletic field or in school perhaps can be shrugged off with, well, no one's perfect. And earlier in the same chapter, Jesus raised the stakes of kingdom living impossibly high for his Audience, when he pronounced in Matthew 5 and 24, I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case 
enter into the kingdom of heaven. Is the call to holiness just a religious guise for the, pre for the pressures of perfectionism? The call to holiness is many ways it's the opposite of that. Kevin Lehman suggests that perfection is what Alfred Adler called a lifestyle, which includes patterns of behavior linked to the often subconscious goals typically ingrained in us by the time we are four or five years old. If perfectionism is a lifestyle linked to our natural birth, then holiness is a lifestyle linked to our new birth. Let me say that again. If perfectionism is a lifestyle linked to our natural birth, then holiness is the lifestyle that's linked to our new birth. We must be sanctified by the Spirit. And there was a debate that we read about this morning in, in Acts 15 over including the Gentiles. And we arrive at what appears to be a, a watershed moment for the early apostolic church. The Gentiles were granted full inclusion as equal members alongside Jewish believers. And keep in mind now, the Gentiles are you and I. And they were granted full inclusion as equal members. However, that point of view is overly simplistic. First, it's easy to forget that. Over a decade ago, earlier, the Jerusalem church had already considered the matter of Gentile inclusion in the church after the conversion of Cornelius' household by Peter, when Peter went to the house of Cornelius. Peter was brought before the church to give an explanation and a defense of his actions, which appeared to be a clear violation of the Mosaic law. However, after he gave a full account, those gathered, Acts 11 and 18 tells us that they held their peace. In other words, they ceased debating about it. And what's more, they glorified God, saying, Then hath God also to the Gentiles granted repentance unto life. And so for all intent purposes, the matter appeared settled without any reference to Old Testament law or the Torah observance it's often referred to. That fact makes the actions of these visitors to Antioch so problematic because it appears that there has been a reversal on a matter that's already decided. And I know this is wordy this morning, but, but bear with me and be patient with me because we're going somewhere with this. In advocating the requirement of circumcision for all Gentile converts, they were really arguing for reinstatement of the entire Mosaic law, or in other words, they wanted it to go back the way it used to be before the Gentiles was included. They wanted this all for themselves. The Gentiles were not good enough to sit on the same pew with them or be in the same house with them. And the second problem was that this approach to the Gentile conversion really positioned Christianity as simply another sect of Judaism like the Sadducees and the Pharisees. In many ways, it positioned Christianity as a sect of Pharisaic Judaism. However, as Paul himself, who was a former Pharisee, argued that the coming of Jesus Christ marked the end, or rather the completion, of the law. We know that Romans 10 and 4 said salvation could no longer be found through law observances, but only through faith in Jesus Christ. And what was at stake here was the very nature of salvation. No wonder this was no small dissension or no small argument. This was serious business, and it would be what would shape the Pentecostal or apostolic movement into what it is today. But, but sadly, almost 2,000 years later, we're still facing a similar problem in the Pentecostal movement. 
It's unbelievable we've covered this many years and come this far, and we're still facing some of the same problems. Nobody wants to talk about it. We, we want to brush it off, but that doesn't mean that it's not true. We may not use the term Gentile, but we're prone to label people. We determine in our own mind if they're good enough to be a part of this. Some think it's their place to become judge or jury and declare a sentence on someone before they've even had the chance to come to the altar and have the redemptive blood of Jesus Christ washed over their life. And that's why it's so important as a congregation and individuals that we guard against this type of mentality. And not only guard against it, but if that spirit creeps into our hearts or creeps into this congregation, we have to fight that off. We can't allow that mindset to creep into our midst because if that takes place, then we're forthright in coming and saying that we do not love like Jesus loved. Because if we can't love one and all, we're failing. We're failing at our, at our mission on this world. The Word says that He gave His Son that whosoever shall believe on Him will have everlasting life. Who, whosoever will, and that means everyone. As the account makes clear, although the Judean ambassadors to Antioch were unqualified from the Jerusalem church, that they did represent a group there led by a converted Pharisee, the dissension was so sharp, or they argued so much, that the leadership identified itself as apostles and elders. They had to go into a closed session to get out of the church, and Peter rose to speak for the last time. And First, it was God, not Peter, who initiated the mission to Cornelius' house. So God told Peter to go there to proclaim the gospel by mouth. And God knew that Cornelius was a Gentile before he sent Peter there. In his commentary, Acts, David Williams points out that the phrase was something of signature, a signature phrase in the book of Acts. In other contexts, it was used to introduce quotations to the writings of David and the prophets. Notably, it referred here to Peter's own words, clearly equating the authority of the gospel he proclaimed to Cornelius with the authority of the Old Testament. In other words, Peter was, could, could and did tie the Old Testament into this new birth uh, revolution that had come. Peter's second point was that the outpouring of the Holy Ghost was the positive evidence of Gentiles believing and being saved. And this same evidence eventually convinced this council. And the outpouring of the Holy Ghost meant that God had, he had purified their hearts by faith and that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, they was saved. And note this twist that Peter puts in it. He had faith that is present. In other words, he convinced the Jewish audience through the Holy Ghost that the Gentiles could be saved just like they were. And most pertinent to the present issue was to allow the unspoken concern about uncircumcision and non-observant Gentiles introducing holy, unholy impurities in the community of believers. Peter emphasized that this concern was a non-issue since these believers had received the Holy Ghost, which is the source and guarantee of their sanctification. And the council's decision... Once it arrived, Peter's testimony was critical to that. James held a position of crucial authority within the council, and he agreed too. He stood up agreeing with Peter that the reputed attachment to the Jewish law is not prevalent. In a move that perhaps shocked the Pharisee contingent, James wholeheartedly endorsed Peter's perspective 
on the Gentile salvation and agreed with it. And he even supported it by proving it in the Old Testament prophecy of Amos. In Amos chapter 9, verse 11, it says, In that day will I raise up the tabernacle of David that is fallen and close up the breaches thereof, and I will raise up his ruins, and I will build it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and of all the heathen which are called by my name, saith the Lord that do this. And so that prophecy envisioned a restored Israel that included non-Israelites as part of the kingdom of God. But with no mention, there's not one mention in the book of Amos in that particular chapter about circumcision or observing the Torah as a requirement to be saved. So to add the yoke, which was Peter's term of the Torah to the believers, was, was just unnecessary trouble. And James argued since the Holy Ghost was already active in their lives, achieving the same ends which the Torah observed, that their observance was ideally aimed in the right direction. In other words, the Gentiles were doing what needed to be done and what was required of them by the plan of salvation. And one final point is important. The guidelines James suggested for the Gentile converts should not be seen as backtracking on the claim that they were sanctified by the work of the Spirit. The Gentiles were just as sanctified as the Jews was, and the guidelines given were aimed at maintaining a fellowship in the church, not at maintaining the Gentiles' saved status. Everything that they were proclaiming for and, and for lack of a better word, arguing for, it was to maintain the fellowship of the church. And that they draw those laws from Leviticus 17 and 18, and it was laws that applied not only to Israelites, but to non-Israelites, or what the Bible referred to as sojourners. And in a sense, it simply matters of cultural sensitivity. Their presence was an important reminder that the church is a society whose structure remains profoundly sensitive to the selfless awareness of the needs of others. And I think we can all understand that. That's one of our jobs is to be sensitive to others that are in the church. I personally think an example of this would be someone who is unchurched, for lack of a better word, or perhaps they know nothing about church. They come for a visit. They're moved on by the Holy Ghost. They come to an altar and repent of their sins. They receive the Holy Ghost. They're baptized in Jesus' name, and now they are, refer, they are what we refer to as saved. But that doesn't automatically morph them into a seasoned saint or a Bible scholar. Now they must be discipled. They must be nurtured and brought along so that they can understand the doctrines of Pentecost for themselves. And you can't be waiting at the door of the changing room after they've been baptized with a list of do's and don'ts. That's insane. Yet there are some that do that. Maybe not at the door of the changing room, but they think it's their responsibility to teach this individual what they should wear, how they should talk, what they should watch. And heavens, no. We, we must take the attitude of loving them unconditionally, bringing them along beside us and show them what it means to be Pentecost by the life we live. Be a living example, and I assure you, between our pastor preaching doctrinal issues from this pulpit and the Holy Ghost, they will soon see and understand what living a holy, consecrated life is all about. We don't have to prop the Holy Ghost up, and we don't have to help it. 
It's been saving people for over 2,000 years. There ain't nothing that anybody at Hatchby and Apostolic Church can do that'll make it any better than it already is. And we have to acknowledge that the Lord will sanctify us. The Pharisees' faction in the Jerusalem church wrongly understood the means of the believers' sanctification that they still operated within the old law of the Old Testament. Ultimately, it led to a word a works-based view of salvation that asserted, I am saved because I have made myself holy, rather than acknowledging I have been made holy because I have been saved. I'll repeat that. I am saved because I have made myself holy. We should acknowledge that I have been made holy because I'm saved. There's nothing that we can do on our own to become holy. Paul likely, when this, was, when this was voiced, Paul likely reacted with a bit of anger to those teaching this because he himself had been a Pharisee who probably believed much of the same thing at an earlier point. And it's easy for us to unconsciously adopt a similar view today. We, we see our holiness as the basis of our salvation rather than recognizing our salvation is the basis of our holiness. More bluntly, we... We might see salvation as work, what God does for us, and holiness as the work we do for Him. But to be honest, nothing could be more spiritually wrong. Our pursuit of holiness must begin with the recognition that God is at work in our lives. You cannot pursue holiness without the Spirit working in us and God guiding us. And we, the only way to walk into newness of life or be empowered to live a transformed life is to understand that God is working in my life and that's what drives me and, and guides me to holiness. In his writings, Paul carefully paralleled the believer's experiences of salvation with the saving work of Christ as encapsulated in the gospel message of his death his burial and his resurrection. In 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 3, the word says, For I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. And so the outpouring of the Holy Ghost that Jesus described to Nicodemus as a spiritual rebirth in John 3 and 5, Paul referred to it as a resurrection. For the metaphor to work, it's important to notice that a resurrection is not the same as revivification. In other words, to be revived is to be brought back to life, to have our death reversed. However, to be resurrected is to be given a new life on the other side of death. So in other words, one who is revived faces the prospect of experiencing death a second time. You can be revived or brought back to life only to die again sometime soon. But one who has experienced resurrection never have to face death again. Because we know that we have life on the other side of this, living with Jesus Christ. This resurrection life is gifted to all of us who believe in Jesus and who have received the gift of the Holy Ghost. And so importantly, this life bears no connection to the previous life. It is extremely uh, a new kind of life, a life of an entirely different order. And Paul said in Romans 6 that the body of sin has been destroyed in our baptism, that henceforth we should, we should not serve sin because we have been 
freed from its power. Yet Christians may still sin, but we no longer live under the dominion of sin. According to Romans 6 and 14, we have power through the sanctifying spirit to resist and defeat sinful strongholds in our lives. Paul said in Romans 6 and 13, Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. Sanctification is not our achievement for God. It is God's achievement in us. Our work in sanctification is simply yielding to the Spirit's work. That's all we've got to do to become sanctified is yield to the Spirit of God. There's nothing, no work that we can do or no good deeds. Being sanctified completely by the Spirit is what we must become. And the power of the Spirit is why the Apostle Paul could make what seems to be an almost outrageous claim to the Thessalonians that God would sanctify them wholly, preserving them blameless unto the day of the Lord. And the word holy there is not H-O-L-Y, it's W-H-O-L-L-Y, meaning that he would preserve them whole, their whole body, mind, body, and spirit. Such language sounds impossible and even downright arrogant. But most often we deflect this text's claim into a debate about whether Paul was meaning the, the humans, that humans are compromised of three separate elements, a body, a soul, and a spirit. Other passages in the New Testament seem to assert that there are only two separate elements, soul and body. As fascinating and beneficial as those discussions are, they may be adventures in missing the point, as the saying goes. More likely... This was a rhetorical flourish echoing Jesus' own invocation as a command to love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Brother Paul emphasized that the call to sanctification impacts every domain of human life. And so as the list of commandments leading up to this final exhortation indicated, holiness encompassed inward attitudes and outward actions. Holiness encompasses inward attitudes and outward actions, as well as behavior toward fellow believers and non-believers. Furthermore, the prescribed level of conduct was humanly possible when he said in 1 Thessalonians 5 and 14, be patient toward all men. 5 and 15, even follow that which is good. 5 and 17, pray without ceasing. In 5 and 22, abstain from all appearance of evil. Paul's point was that the Spirit, the source of the power that would enable us to live this way, is what will allow us to be patient and to follow good and to pray without ceasing and to abstain from evil. And the God who called us to holiness, He is faithful and He will accomplish for us a transformative work in our life. And it's important that we understand the need to be filled with the Spirit and to walk in the newness of life. Before believers can ever commit to walking in holiness, a scripture defines that they must first commit to walking in the Spirit. A lifestyle of holiness divorced from the inner working of the Spirit is nothing more than a pursuit of self-righteousness which leads to arrogance or despair. And it'll end up in a quagmire like of Acts 8 and 15, where we fail to recognize the work of the Spirit in our own brothers and sisters because they do not follow our 
rules. Now, let me repeat that. A lifestyle of holiness divorced from the inner working of the Spirit. In other words, trying to live holy without letting the Spirit guide you and lead you will lead to arrogance, pride, and despair. But worse than all that, it's going to blind me to recognize the Spirit moving in Brother Fears and the Spirit working through him. And I'm blind to the fact because I'm full of arrogance, I'm full of pride, and I'm despair, and I don't recognize the real fruit of the Spirit. And because of that, I expect him to follow my rules. He's not, he's not doing what I think is right because I'm blinded. And therefore, there brings the, the, that hinders the unity of the church. And there cannot be, uh, there cannot be sanctification. Not, there cannot be holiness if there's disunity in the church. It, the two can't coincide. We've all, that's why this, the Bible speaks of being in uh, one soul, one heart, and one mind. We attempt to impose our ways rather than to live a unity birthed in love and mutual care. Not only is our own walk with the Lord imperiled by our pride, but the health of the church is damaged. And ultimately, the witness of the church is damaged and the transforming power of the gospel is negated. And you know who's watching all of this while it takes place? The world. They look at a place that claims to be full of help and full of healing and full of restoration. And here we can't even get along with ourselves, backbiting and stabbing in the back. And we, we've got to live in holiness and allow the Spirit of God to not only work inside of us, but the Spirit of God to work on the outside of us. You may think that you're right on the inside, but it's hard for anybody else to tell when you walk around growling all the time without a smile on your face. And I'm not saying every day is perfect and we're smiling all the time, but it's easy to feel that God's love for us is directly attached to how well we behave. And then we completely forget that the love of God extends to sinners. We think if we'll behave and do right, He loves us, but that He don't love somebody that's not doing right. And Romans 5 and 8 is uh, totally against that. We, we're so worried by the expectation of Paul that we are to live blameless until the return of Christ that we forget to read the next sentence in 1 Thessalonians 5 and 24 that says, Faithful is he that calleth you who also will do it. So if God's called you today, he would have never called you to this if he didn't think you could live this. He, he will help us and help you to live this. And there are two key differences between the cultural push for perfection and the biblical call to holiness. Perfection is understood as our work, where holiness is always and ever God's work on our behalf. Perfection places the focus squarely on us, and holiness fixes our eyes upon God. Thus, the pursuit of holiness only works in the broader context of faith in God. He that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Hebrews 11 and 6. Brother, as Brothers Davis stated, we, we do strive and seek perfection to be like him, but we have to understand on this side of heaven, we never will be. 
But there's no need to be discouraged about that, and it shouldn't prevent us from still striving to reach. If we doubt goodness of God's character or His desire to bless and help us, we'll fall into the pursuit of perfection in an attempt to convince God to like me more. I'm going to try harder so He'll love me more than He loves you. We won't work that way. We've got to be in pursuit of holiness because we want to be more like Him and His Spirit is working in us. The second major difference is that perfection emphasizes actions, but holiness emphasizes character. Never forget that the fundamental essence of holy living is found in manifesting the fruit of the Spirit, which are all qualities of Christian character rather than actions. One problem with the action-centered focus of perfection is what we call a slide toward minimum requirements. Being perfect really becomes nothing more than being better than everybody else. And that's not what the Scripture is referring to. And it's always possible, always possible to find someone doing much worse than we are. And that's just the truth of the matter. But God is more interested in who we become than in what we do, because if we're Christ-like, our character, if we're Christ-like in our heart, we're Christ-like in our character and our integrity, we will respond in any given crisis with Christ-like actions. But if we're not letting the Spirit guide us, and if we're not in pursuit of what God has for us, you'll have a tendency to not respond in the right way when a crisis hits your life. And in most Oftentimes than not, when crisis hits our life, we're usually not alone. There's always somebody watching. In a very real sense, holiness is simply the word for what, hap- for what happens in us as we grow closer to God and to our brothers and sisters in the church. I'm going to repeat that because I've said a bunch of jumbled up words this morning. But at the end of the day, all that really matters is this right here. In, in real time, holiness is simply the word for what happens in you and I when we grow closer to God and, to, and, and when we grow closer to our brothers and sisters in church. Holiness is, all holiness is, is, is you and I growing closer to God and growing, growing, growing closer to each other. It's more than a byproduct or an independent aim. Holiness is not the pursuit of perfection, but it's rather the perfection of pursuit. I want to be pursuing at all times. Knowing that I can't reach the perfection like Jesus Christ, but I want to be pursuing at all times. Pursue God. I want to pursue relationship. I want to pursue love and replace try with rely and replace do the next right thing with the words walk in the spirit and replace achieve with the word attempt. Drawing close to God moves us away from the world and the influences of the world. Temptations lose their grip. Wrong attitudes can finally be identified and rejected. When we, walk in, when we walk in the Spirit and when we strive to have the Spirit of God working in us. Will you be perfect? No. But you will be holy. And it doesn't matter if the picture on your wall is crooked. It's not my place to straighten it. <laughs> Would you stand with me this morning? I am.
This message has been brought to you today by the media ministry of Hatchbend Apostolic Church. We pray that it's ministered to you in some way, and we'd like to take this opportunity to invite you to join us in service here at Hatchbend Apostolic. Our Sunday services begin at 10 a.m. and our Wednesday night service at 7.30 p.m. For any more information or to speak with our ministry staff, please feel free to call our church office at 386-935-2806 or you can visit the contact link here on our website. Again, thank you for listening and we pray God's richest blessings on you and your family.